Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one small slice of American writing using the Library of America as my source material. And in this episode, I'll be continuing my look at Willa Cather's novel, The Song of the Lark. The Song of the Lark was published in 1915. It is was her fourth book uh, and the second of the so-called Great Plains Trilogy. But in fact, this novel is set mostly outside of the Great Plains. I mean, it was started in Chicago, or started in Colorado, then to Chicago. Uh, the character spends time in Germany and the Southwest. But um, anyways, it's it's often joined with old pioneers in, in Maya Antonio right, to make the Great Lakes, or the, not the Great Lakes, the Great Plains trilogy. Um, so the novel centers around the experiences of, of Thea Kronberg. We meet her, she's just a, a you know, a girl. Um, by the end of part one, she's a, a young woman who has really reached the end of what her small town in Moonstone, Colorado can, can achieve for her and can give her. So she grows increasingly frustrated and feeling limited there. She's basically, her future there is to be a music teacher. Um, and she is a fairly decent music teacher, but she really has artistic ambitions and she was studying uh, the piano artistically. With the death of her suitor, an older man named Ray Kennedy, who died in a railroad accident, that kind of closed off the last link she had to uh, that small town in Colorado. Plus, Ray Kennedy left his life insurance to Thea, giving her a chance to study music in Chicago. She takes up this opportunity to study music in Chicago, along with the, the help of, of a man, um, Dr. Archie. Now, Archie has a kind of platonic love for, for Thea, rooted in their, their long experience together. Um, very much enamored with her ability and, and talent. He's married, though, so it, it's, not like a, it's not like a romantic love, but it's a, it's a deep kind of platonic love she ha- he has for her. He helps her get settled in, in Chicago having her move in with some friends. So she's a young woman living in Chicago, working basically in a church, singing in choir, singing at funerals, doing that kind of thing. But she's mostly studying piano with uh, with uh, an instructor named Haizani. Haizani is the name of the, the piano instructor she has. He figures out about her singing and he experiences her singing and he thinks, although <clears throat> her voice has some faults, I think it's in the middle range. She has like a, a, a I'm not really know much about music but she doesn't have a consistent range there's a space in the middle of the range where she's kind of off and you know that would really limit her ability but she's got a really wonderful voice and style of singing and he thought she has a natural talent so he actually gives up on her as a piano student saying you're not going to get that far in piano you really have to cultivate this gift god gave you this this talent and then he sets up to have her work with uh, a singing instructor named bowers uh, he's a very famous, he's one of the most important, one of the most um, well-known singing instructors in in Chicago. She starts to take lessons with him, and then she goes to visit home in the summer in Moonstown. She spends the summer in Moonstown, where she, she has a lot of difficulty reconnecting with her family after her time in Chicago. But she does spend time in the Mexican community. She, now, she knew the Mexican community fairly well in her childhood, partially thanks to Ray Kennedy interacting with them and others. And she went on trips with Dr. Archie to see them. And one man in particular, Spanish Johnny, is a singer. And she ends up going to like this party with the, the Mexican community of, of Moonstown. And she sings really 
for the first time to the to those people and first she just listens to the other singing and she experiences like joyous singing she then sings for herself and really experiences some joy of singing and and for it's really a cathartic moment because in, throughout the part where she's been in Chicago, we just see her as a very hard worker. Uh, she works hard. She doesn't really do much. Um, in fact, like some friends had to literally kind of drag her out of her home to take her to the museum and take her to the opera and the concert and things like that. So she's very dedicated at her cultivating her art, but she really didn't have much pleasure in the art. And she has that moment when she's in Moonstone singing for the singing, you know, at this essentially a party. But uh, this is all in part two of Song of the Lark. She, at the end of part two, she has to return to Chicago to take up her lessons now as a singer with Bowers. So she's gone through two music teachers, both of whom she very much cared for and very much liked and, and had a close relationship with, to Bowers, who's a much higher end teacher who has got a lot of students, and he's not going to give Thea nearly the time that she's used to or the attention she's, she's used to and that's going to lead to a crisis in her um, in her education um, now what I'm going to talk about today is parts three and four of Song of the Lark it, it covers about a hundred pages or so um, and it really focuses on a couple of things one is her growing frustration with her musical education under Bowers and we see how important it is to have a teacher who's sympathetic and caring and attentive for young students. Um, Bowers, he's not a bad guy, but he's just kind of indifferent. He sees so many great, talented singers that he really can't give them all all the attention. He's got better students. He's got more well-developed students that he focuses on. So Thea feels a bit left behind in the Bowers studio. But the other thing she does is she meets a man named, let me make sure I get his name written down right. Yeah, Fred Otenberg who is going to be like the romantic interest for Thea. And you know, she had ones before, I mean, particularly Ray Kennedy. Um, but this is the first time she actually starts to feel this emotional connection to a man and she starts to have romantic interest in a man. And so part threes and f three and four are really about this relationship and how it develops first in Chicago. And then after she takes a break from her, her training, she goes down to the Southwest to Odenberg's ranch where she lives for a, a number of months. And then she's able to connect with Fred more directly. Um, and that, that's kind of going to be the foundation of the relationship. But then part four is going to end with a choice she has to make. Does she return to Chicago? Does she give up on her education altogether? Does she go to Germany? You know, what does that mean for a burgeoning relationship with, with Fred? So that's really what happens in parts three and four. But I, I will go into some more details, of course. But listen to how this opens. And we just see how much Thea does not like her new experience training with Bowers and she's given up kind of the teacher she loved. She actually back in Moonstone she had a teacher she very had a she had a very close relationship with Wunsk. Um and she's just anyways I'll just I'll just read this how this part three opens. So many grinning stupid faces. Thea was sitting by the window in Bowers studio waiting for him to come back from lunch. On her knee was the latest number of illustrated musical journals in which the musicians great and stride and advertised their wares. Every afternoon she played a company for people who looked and smiled like these. She was getting tired of the human continents. Thea had been in Chicago for two months. She had a small church position which partially paid her living expenses and she paid for her singing lessons by playing Bowers accompaniments every afternoon from two to six. She had been compelled to leave her old friends, Mrs. Lorch and Mrs. Anderson, because of the long ride from North Chicago to Bauer's studio on Michigan Avenue it took too much time, an hour in the morning and at night. 
For the first month, she had clung to her old room, but the bad air in the cars and at the end of the long days of work fatigued her greatly and was bad for her voice. Since she left Mrs. Lore, she had been staying at students' clubs, which was introduced by Mrs. Adler. Um, okay, so Thea's condition has certainly gone down, right? She, she has this indifferent teacher. She has to spend most of her time not really working on her voice, but playing accompaniment on the piano for other, other students of Bowers. Um, so you get the sense that Bowers doesn't really fully see Thea's value, at least not the way her son, he did. And, and she's starting to get a disgust for like artists and the singers, the singers she wants to be. She, she, the grinning, stupid faces of the singers is how this section um, opens. As for Bowers himself, quote, Bowers had all the qualities which go to make a good teacher, except generosity and warmth. His intelligence was of a high order. His taste never at fault. He seldom worked with a voice without improving it. And in teaching the delivery of oratorio, he was without ra ra rival. All right, so that's him. A good teacher, but, but not the kind of person Thea is really going to develop that close relationship she, she had with other, other musicians. And as she gets more and more grumpy, and she can't really make friends with anyone or the other singing students and the people around you know Bowers actually sits down and talks to her at one point saying you know being a good singer it's it's not just talent it's not just skill you know you have to be able to especially if you want to be a performer you have to be able to interact with public and be in public right it's it's partially this intersocial not just the 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 singing ability so it's a little bit of a warning um I guess she just finds other people so fake at this point and and She's sort of sick of it. And she's then very disappointed when she finds out that her Sonny is not going to be coming back. You know, and although he's not, she's not her, her student anymore, he still thought she could have interactions with someone she really respected and thought was smart, intelligent, you know, effective, and, you know, and, and kind of had some emotion with him and didn't treat her so indifferently as she feels some of these other people did. So she's really disappointed about about that. And Thea, meanwhile, is just kind of moving around from place to place, staying at different boarding houses, staying at different like rooms and things. And her life's really in in flux. And her spirits are falling very rapidly. And this this frustration just develops into kind of a, a look of disgust at the people around her. Quote, Thea used to waken up in the night and wonder why she was so unhappy. She would have been amazed if she had known how much the people whom she met in Bauer's studio had to do with her low spirits. She had never been conscious of those instinctive standards, which are called ideals, and she did not know that she was suffering for them. She often found herself sneering when she was on the streetcar or when she was brushing out her hair before the mirror or some inane remark or too familiar mannerism filtered, flittered away in her mind. And she starts to hate all the people around her. And she just a couple of them, especially like this Jesse Darcy, a more established singer from the studio that that I think that's one of the ones that that Thea had to play accompaniment for during her lessons and things. She really hated that. Um, and she didn't even think she was a very good singer. And I think that reinforces the idea that Bowers was saying that, you know, it's a little bit more than just your skill. Right. Even people with a little less skill, if they can win in the intersocial, interpersonal aspect, they can be successful. And when she kind of gets into a thing with with her during one of the lessons, this this um, pisses off uh, Bowers. So that's when we're introduced to Fred um, Fred Otenberg. Fred Otenberg is like running his family business now. I think their family's ba they're based in the Southwest, or at least that's where their ranch is. But he's like a brewer. It's like a brewing company, 
and he kind of runs the Chicago branch of it. But he's kind of distracted. He doesn't really like the work that much. So he's, he pursues other interests. And one of those is learning to sing. So he shows up at the studio as well. And he likes opera. He goes to Bayreuth to see the Wagner. He, he's, you know, he's got money. So he spends, he's kind of a social butterfly. But so he and he's kind of he's got this image of this reputation of being a bit of a ladies man. And but he gets introduced to to Thea through the studio where he he takes singing lessons. Now, very early on, Fred and Thea seem to hit it off. Thea's a little suspicious, partially because he does seem to have this um, air of being a bit of a, a a bit of a wastrel, you know, a rich kid, a rich, rich young man who doesn't know what to do with his time and effort and his work doesn't really require him to do that much. So he has all this time for other events. <laughs> In fact, at one point she asks, you know, if he's such a grand businessman, how does he have time to run around listening to singing lessons? But he becomes very popular in the studio and the people like having him around. And, you know, he's able to flirt with her. He's younger, so he's a little bit older than Thea, but he's, he's on the younger side of it. And so she's actually has a chance here to be around a man of her own age. And she spends a lot of time with teachers and even her previous love interest, Ray Kennedy, was so much older than her. So this is, I think this is really the first man in her life that, that's kind of a, a more suitable marriage partner, really, of her, of her, not her class, but of her, of her age and, and temperament. They're able to take, start flirting right away. And, you know, talk about singing and he talks about his travels to Bayreuth. He sneaks that into his conversations. They joke about, you know, immigrants and the languages they speak and the, the loss of the the native languages so that's um th so that's the next major character that's that's introduced and he's going to be an important character for the rest of the novel and uh, one day odenberg fred actually hires thea and, and goes to bauer and say you know i'd love to rent rent thea for a while for a concert it's um basically he arranges a little concert for her, um with henry nathan meyer and his wife these are some family friends of you know, or some acquaintances of 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 Otenberg. And when she gets in, they they actually dress her up. It's they they I guess they don't like the clothes she wears, so they dress her up into some fancy clothes, and then she puts on this concert for the the Nathan Myers. And she is really a great night for her. She it's described here as the happiest evening she had in Chicago. Quote, she had enjoyed the Nathan Myers and their grand house, the new dress, and Otenberg, the first real carriage rise, and a good supper when she was so hungry. And Otenberg was jolly. He never made you come back to him. You were not always being caught up and mystified. When you started with him, you went. You cut the breeze, as Ray used to say. He's had some go in him. And after this night, we're, we're actually given Fred's background. He's 28 years old. And like a lot of these immigrant families with money, like... The father was industrious. The younger kids, or the older kids, I mean, were kind of carried on the father because they remembered maybe the hard years. Fred, younger than her, his older brothers, you know, kind of lived more in luxury. So he always had what he wanted, and he, you know, he he was able to have a little bit more extravagant life. Quote. The people could only say of him that he had been less hurt by his mother's indulgence than most boys would have been. He had never wanted anything that he could not have it. And he might have had a great many things that he never wanted. He was extravagant, but not prodigal. 
He turned most of the money his mother gave him into the business and lived on his generous salary. Fred had never been bored for a day in his whole life. When he was in Chicago or St. Louis, he went to the ball games, prize fights, and horse races. When he was in Germany, he went to concerts in the opera. He belonged to a long list of sporting clubs and hunting clubs and was a good boxer. He had so many natural interests that he had no affections. At Harvard, he kept away from the aesthetic circle. Okay, blah, blah, blah. Um, when he was in Germany, he barely knew where the soup ended and where the symphony began. So he's very active, but he's, he's very bougie, too, because he has all this money to, to spend. So he doesn't have to make a lot of the hard choices that, that someone like Thea has to make um, and doesn't have to sacrifice her personal life for a slim chance at her career. It's all play for him because, uh, you know, what he has, his life is taken care of. He's going to run the brewery business in Chicago, and that's going to be sort of it. So as part three of Song of the Lark ends, Thea gets sick, and this disrupts her, her singing training, and like she gets a long kind of infection that becomes kind of chronic. And Fred recommends that, why don't you just go to the Arizona? We have a ranch there. You can live there. We'll set up a house. You know, he's not going to be there right away, but you can go there, set up there, and, and get better. And she agrees to do that. Um, and then she, this ranch is right next to like these cliff homes that are like the pre-Columbian people, right? Or the, I guess not all pre-Columbian, but you know, the, the, the Southwestern Indians used to live in this cliff houses, those adobe cliff houses were carved out of the rock. And so she's going to stay on a ranch that's right next to that. So she's going to be right into that deep history. Um, so that's, that's where she heads out. So as part three ends, Thea heads out to, to Arizona on, on a little adventure and a bit of a break from her, her singing career and then while she's in Arizona she's going to experience this past and also have to make a decision about her her future with Fred and her future with her her career now I think this is my favorite part of the novel part four it's called the ancient people and a lot of it is about say uh, just experiencing mostly on her own but in the second half of the part Fred shows up but she's spending most of it on her own, just kind of taking in the setting, taking in the experience and feeling kind of this deep time. Like, I don't know how much it shapes her. I mean, Katha presents it that there's kind of an epiphany, epith epiphany that she has to kind of recommit to her art and, and be part of this continuity of culture, I, I guess. But, you know, just the just the way she describes it, you know, and, and the, the kind of the pleasure she gets out of just experiencing you know, this deep time, the, these kind of ancient civilizations, you know, they're, they're presented as kind of dead, dead or dying civilizations, you know, and of course this time is, is really kind of the nadir of, of American Indian history where I think populations were at their lowest in the early 20th century. And you had the Dawes Act, which was seizing a lot of Indian land and private, you know, sending a lot of it to private hands and the effort to kind of assimilate Indians. It's called the Allotment Act that, you know, really when people were talking about like the end of Native America you know that was the those were the policies that were backing that up and that's kind of the, the historical context of of Cather's work um, so it does get I think a false perception of kind of like these are dead ancient civilizations there's there's just remnants of it last left but the way Thea experiences it I think it's quite compelling and interesting and and pleasing I guess it's just it's just they're pleasing sections plus because you know much of the rest of the novel you just feel this pressure she's under to cultivate her art and it's not like anyone was really putting this pressure on her she wanted this art um, 
I mean, she could have, well, I guess Ray Kennedy died, but if she had just married Kennedy and went with him speculating in silver mines, she would have had a different life. She wouldn't have, you know, but, you know, this kind of misery builds up by the time she's in Chicago. And it's so, it's kind of nasty to read part three. Part four is so much more pleasure. Um, now, the starting of this is, though, she really comes to Arizona feeling like a failure. Quote, so far, she had failed. Her two years in Chicago had not resulted in anything. She had failed with Harsani. She had made no great progress with her voice. She had come to believe that whatever Bowers had taught her was of secondary importance, and that in the essential things, she had made no advance. Her student life closed behind her like the forest, and she doubted whether she could go back to it if she tried. Probably she would teach music in a little country town all her life. Failure was not so tragic as she would have supposed. She was tired enough not to care. So that's how she feels as the section opens. So she's on this ranch. She's staying with this guy, old Henry Biltmer, and, and they're, they're like tenants or something on this ranch. And she's, she's staying with them, but she often will stay in the cliffside hovels, the, these adobe hovels as well, these old Navajo um, homes. Quote, this was her old idea, a nest in the high cliff full of sun. All morning long, the sun beat upon our cliff while the ruins on the opposite side of the canyon were in shadows. In the afternoon, when she had a shade of 200 feet of rock wall, the ruins on the other side of the gulf stood out in the blazing sunlight. Before the door ran a narrow, winding path that had been the street of the ancient people. Neat. I mean, this is, this is where she's living. It seems like an awesome experience, to be honest. And she stops singing, and she's actually a bit concerned that maybe she'll lose that skill altogether, right? If a skill's not cultivated, what happens to it, right? So she actually worries that she's not engaged in that. But, you know, this just seems so pleasurable, the, the place she's at. Um, what does she do there? Well, she studies pottery. She studies the, these. I think they're Navajo. They're, the, it's Panther Canyon, so I don't know if that's a real place, but that's... That's most of what she's doing is studying the ancient, like Indian customs, how they grind food, the, the, the different artifacts left behind. And she's really experiencing sort of this deep time. What do we got here? Um, that stream was the only living thing of a drama that had been played out in the canyon centuries ago. In that rapid, restless heart of it, flowing swifter than most, there was a continuity of life that reached back into the old time. The glittering thread of a current that a kind of lightly worn, loosely knit personality, graceful and laughing. Thea's breath came to have a ceremonial gravity. The atmosphere of the canyon was ritualistic. And she's experiencing this all basically alone, studying the jars, studying the various aspects of the cliff dwellers civilization. She's almost like a little anthropologist or historian here. Um, somehow, though, this experience she has convinces her that she needs to go back to work on her art. Getting away, it seems getting away from the teachers and getting away from the lessons helps her reconnect with her music. Even by not singing, she's able to reconnect with it. So this fear she had before, this is just a, literally a few pages before of, of not singing, losing her art, it doesn't seem to be the case. So in the Library of America version, this is 554555 these two pages and they're some of the most important in the novel it seems because they're where she starts to think about her voice more spiritually uh less objectively less as something that just needs to be perfected or skilled but something that has to be 
experience. Quote, she had not been singing much, but she knew that her voice was more interesting than it had been before. She had begun to understand that, with her at least, voice was first of all vitality, a lightness in the body and a driving power in her blood. If she had that, she could sing. When she felt so keenly alive, lying on that immense shelf of stone, when her body bounded like a rubber ball away from its hard hardness, then she could sing. This too, she could explain to Fred. He would know what she meant. And she concludes at the end that she has a, quote, older and higher obligation, end quote, to sing. And she's, but she's not going to go back to Chicago. She says, I'm going to go to Germany to sing. And so this is something she's going to have to have a conversation with uh, about Fred, both financially and their, their budding relationship. They're not really committed into a relationship yet. They haven't kissed yet or anything like that. But, you know, it's under the surface, too, that going to Germany might complicate things uh, in her courtship with Fred. I actually do think there was a scene in part three where she's in her bed thinking about Fred and she realizes like, you know, for the first time she's having like these sexual desires for, for a man. Uh, so it's already been established that Fred is a, is a possible romantic interest. So after this realization, Fred eventually comes to join her in, in the ranch and they they're actually out once, just sort of playing around. I think they're throwing rocks and stuff. Yeah, they're, she's, she's teaching her how to throw rocks into a river and things. And then, then they kiss for the first time. I think she kisses him, actually. Um, that Biltmer actually s sees them kiss. Yeah, it's kind of, he's kind of like a, most of the section is kind of like this old guy who's just like hanging out and watching everything. Uh, but the same way Thea is kind of watching this ancient civilization unfold. He's watching the interpersonal relationships between, you know, Thea and, and Fred. I don't know what to make of this character, really. Maybe, maybe someone has an idea. But with Fred there, there, her life continues on much the same. She spends most of her time, like, in Panther Canyon, on the hillside, cliffside, you know, observing it and then, then eating at the ranch with uh, the Biltners. Um, so one... They have a very active summer together where they, they spend most of their time together and, and their relationship is developing quite nicely. Um, it's during a thunderstorm, though, that. Well, they're out, they're out and it starts to storm, it starts to rain. And then they have to say, do we hide in the caves? Do we go back? And they, they try to get back eventually. And Henry finds them. And, you know, there's a scene where it's dark and it's raining and you actually see the lantern and they're approaching Henry and, and they see they, they've made it back to safety. So, you know, it's, it's a well-constructed scene in which there's a, there's a bit of peril here for these two where they're trying to decide, you know, how to, how to avoid this, this thunderstorm. But it's a really bonding moment, too, for them. Now, their summer in the southwest comes to an end and they... You know, they, they're together on the Eastbound Express heading back and they really don't know where they're going to go. It's they're on the train, but they don't really have clear plans um, there. The assumption is we can just go back to Chicago and check in like on Bowers, maybe or or other contacts they have there. But Thea's not going back to Bowers. That's that's clear. Um, so we have an option of marrying of. And they do talk pretty openly about about marriage. Fred actually wants her to go to. Mexico and Cultivator are there. She thinks she can be inspired by it. She sa he says, dismiss it, dismiss it if you don't like it. Suppose we go down to Mexico on the chance. You've never seen anything like Mexico City. It'll be a lark for you anyhow. If you change your mind 
and don't want to marry me, you can go back to Chicago and I'll take a steamer from Veracruz and go up to New York. When I get to Chicago, you'll be at work and nobody will be the wiser. No reason why we shouldn't both travel to Mexico, is there? You'll be traveling alone. I'll maybe tell you the right places to stop and come to take you driving. I won't put any pressure on you. Have I ever? You have your own future in the back of your mind all the time, Fred, Fred said, and have it in mind. I'm not going to try to carry you off as I might another girl. If I wanted, If you wanted to quit me, I couldn't hold on to you no matter how many times you had married me. I don't want to over persuade you, but I like you mighty well to get to get you down to that jolly old city where everything would please you and give myself a chance. Then if you thought you could have a better time with me than without me, I'll try to grab you before you change your mind. You're not a very sentimental person. So this is his plea for them to go to Mexico City together and really consider marriage. He thinks this could be a, a nice trip before she goes off to Germany. Um, and then that, then the section four basically ends um, with a bit unresolved about where they're going to go. And then we get placed right at the end of, of section four, almost a whole chapter, about 10 pages or so, where we get Fred Odenberg's a little bit more on his background. And the thing we learn is that when he was 20 or so, he married. He married a woman called Edith Beers. And Edith Beers, um, now this relationship didn't work out, um, but they're still officially married and... It's not something he told Thea before, because Thea at this point doesn't even know that, that he is married. So at this point, it's basically a marriage in name only. They're estranged. And and as he's thinking about his past, Fred's thinking about his past, he thinks about, you know, that he really wants this. this he wants Thea. And he's how, you know, he has a little monologue where he thinks about how impressed he is with her and you know, how he's moving ahead with that and how that's kind of going to run into a problem when he at some point will have to talk with her about about his wife so that's where part four more or less ends up um, there's just two sections left there's about 100 pages left in the novel the song of the lark that section is going to cover those sections are going to cover um, well basically Thea goes to New York City she has a meeting with Archie where she talks about getting funding for her trip to Germany she She's kind of keeps some distance from Fred because she doesn't want, I guess, that financial commitment from Fred. She doesn't want Fred paying the way. Uh, so they part for a while. And then she goes to Germany. And then we don't actually see Thea for 10 years later um, when she comes back and she's now an artist, an opera singer, and performing around, around America. And then this gives us a chance to reconnect with Archie and Fred and others get to meet Thea and, and the story can have its its resolution at that point. So um, we're going to see what happens to to Thea and how she succeeds in becoming an artist and what Germany meant for her and all that in the next episode, which will be the final one cover of my coverage of, of Song of the Lark by Willa Cather. So as always, thanks for listening. Um, there's probably a lot I missed and a lot I misinterpreted and uh, I would love your opinions and your thoughts about Song of the Lark. If you have read this book, if you're reading along with me, what were your impressions and your feelings about it? Please share those thoughts below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com and I'll try to respond to your comments on the air. So as always, again, thanks for listening. I'll see you next time with my finale of my my review of, of Willa Cather's The Song of the Lark. Oh,